you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter four. Have you ever had somebody say to you, have you ever heard one thing you should know about us is fill in the blank. One thing you really need to know is this. Sometimes there are things you really need to know if you're going to succeed in a certain place. Maybe that was maybe when you were getting married, you were entering a new family by marriage. Something you really need to know about us is we're this. We act this way. When it's game time, watch out. The wedding rings come off, right? Maybe you knew somebody like that. Or if you're going into a new job or a new culture, something like that. It's going to be very helpful to you if someone tells you, saying you're, you're going to go be a pastor or a missionary or something in a place like Mexico City or Rio de Janeiro or something like that, and you're planning to have your service time at 10 a.m. Sunday morning, it's going to be very helpful to you if someone tells you about how everybody operates with time because you're ready for things to start at 10 a.m. and nobody's there, right? When does the service start? It starts when everybody gets there. It's going to be really helpful to you if somebody tells you that. Otherwise, you're going to spend all your time frustrated. Or maybe if you're going to school in, uh, say, South Korea or something like that, you're a university student or, or um, undergraduate student or something like that, it's going to be really helpful to you if someone kind of gives you the lay of the land and you need to understand who the oldest person in the room is, right? Because everything kind of falls into order under, based on age. You need to arrange yourself appropriately. Sometimes we really need to know things if we're going to be successful in a certain place at a certain time. In our passage today, in 1 Thessalonians 4, one thing Christians really need to know about is the future. God reveals the truth about the future to give us hope and comfort, especially when we lose those that we love. Because when we experience loss and we think about the future, that can really get us down, can it? Can really, really push us down. And sometimes it feels like we're going to be pushed out. And in keeping with the theme of this letter over the summer, I had the opportunity to preach most Sunday evenings, and it was my goal to get through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. We didn't, you know, it's fall now, so we didn't quite get there. But I'm thankful for the opportunity today to <clears throat> continue our study in this letter. And we've kind of taken as a little bit of a theme for the letter. It seems that Paul is writing to assure these people that God will preserve them in their faith by strengthening them in their Christian walk. And God is giving them hope to preserve them in their faith. He gives us hope to do this. And specifically in verses 13 through 18, maybe you have a little bit of a, a paragraph division there or a heading like I do in my Bible. Paul deals with the resurrection and the return of Christ. And the resurrection especially is a comfort to saints who sorrow. And we need to believe what God reveals about the future for the strength and the endurance and the comfort of our faith. And you'll see, if you look in verse 18, the very last verse of the chapter, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. These are words that this church needed to know. Look in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. We, want, we don't want you to be ignorant. They needed to know certain things, know words in order to believe them. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died, and really what he's doing is he's applying the truth. If this is true, we know this, and this is a comfort. We need to know certain things. We need to believe them. We need to apply them, these words that God has given us, that God has revealed to us, as we'll see, so that we would live in an exemplary way, so that we would live in a way that is honorable in the sight of all and pleasing to our God. So this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to five points of differing lengths. Hope that number doesn't scare you. Paul kind of introduces this topic of Christian love in verses, excuse me, Christian hope in verse 13. And then in verse 14, he demonstrates for the church the foundation of their Christian hope. He lays the foundation of what, what is the basis for their hope about the future. He makes reference to who is, in fact, the beneficiary, who are the beneficiaries of this hope. And then in verses 16 and 17, he fixes their gaze, I think, quite importantly, on the glory of that Christian hope. 
what is the essence? What is, what is the expectation? What is the substance of what we hope for? And then in the last verse, he tells them the purpose of hope. Of course, that's comforting one another. So what do we need to know about the future? What happens to Christians who, who die? Someone wrote a, or uh, preached a sermon on this text with that title. Let's read the text together, starting in verse 13. First Thessalonians 4, 13, God's word says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these hope-giving words. Perhaps we've heard them often at funerals. And it is, it is a comfort and a treasure that we have this revelation in your word to us. Help us to value it and help us to take the comfort that you intend today. Help us, help me as I bring the word, help each of us as we listen and respond to the word. Be with us today. Help us to be obedient to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You see in verse 13 when Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. He's making a contrast. He's bringing up the topic of Christian hope, and he does so with the word, but. If you look back in verse 9, the very first word there in our English Bible is now. It's actually the exact same word as the one here in verse 13. Paul is bringing up various topics that they need to know about as he seeks to finish discipling them and bringing them to a full understanding of what they need to know to withstand the pressures they're facing after Paul has left them in the city of Thessalonica. You may remember that Paul, in his missionary journeys, went to this city in what is now modern-day Greece, I believe, and he was with them at least for a couple of weeks, and then he was chased off, and he was gone, it seemed, before he was barely even there. And Paul is writing. This is probably one of his first letters that he wrote, writing back to them to see that they're doing okay, because the persecution that chased him off, everyone is still there. And now there's this new community of believers that has to face the same pressure that he himself faced. So he's dealing with a number of topics to establish them in their faith and fortify, again, fortify them against the pressure that will come against them. If you look back at the beginning of the chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4, he's kind of making a major transition in the letter. He says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you re receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. This is what he's turned to at this point in his letter. In our teen Christian life hour, I made reference to this is this is a letter. It would be like us going out to the mailbox today and finding a letter from the Apostle Paul and coming in and reading it. This is what he's dealing with now. Obviously, that's not our situation today. But they would be reading this in the church. This is what they're hearing. Okay, this is how we need to walk and live pleasing to God. What do we need to hear first? Verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What will undercut your faith quicker than anything? Immorality. Paul knows they've been saved out of this. The pagan temples are still there. The immorality at the temple is still there, beckoning them. Maybe they're working in trades that they're still rubbing shoulders with these people. Don't go back. Don't go back. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's topic number one. Verse nine. Topic number two. Now. As to the love of the brethren, they're doing quite well. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. What's something else that will undermine our faith? It's selfishness. It's withdrawal. It's self-centeredness rather than reaching out. 
That's going to hollow out what it means to be a Christian. By this, Jesus said, shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? That you have love for one another. So even though you're doing well, and I see evidence of true faith in your life, you love one another, keep going, press on. It's not just enough to have the basics of the Christian life. Keep growing, be strong in the Lord. And now his third topic is about the future and about saints who have died, because what could really topple the tree of the Christian life? Maybe sorrow, immoderate sorrow, sorrow that has no hope, despair. So he brings up the topic of Christian hope. And it really is, he's broaching it because of the need for exemplary living and for continuing to progress in the Christian life. He says that with reference in verse 12 to loving the brethren, do this, verse 12, so that you will behave properly or honorably toward outsiders and not be in any need. We need to behave, we need to live in an honorable way before all men, because our lives are a witness, aren't they? People see what we're doing. And don't they often see, first and foremost, how we respond to loss? Have you ever had this experience where you experience some tragedy and the Lord really gives you grace and you come through it and people are, are really marveling at this? How do you do that? There's something distinctive about saints who sorrow with hope, isn't there? And that's why Paul is bringing it up, because we need to live this way. We need our faith to be strong for ourselves, for the Lord, for our witness to others. But he does seem to be introducing this due to some ignorance, doesn't he? We do not want you to be uninformed. This is agneo. It's ignorance. He doesn't want them to be ignorant about this. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, he makes a little transition as he talks about the future. But it does seem like they're not ignorant about other things. Now, as to the times and the epics, brother, and you have no need for anything to be written to you. Paul knows what they know and what they don't know. And here he's dealing with what he, they don't know, right? He's bringing this up because there's some ignorance in the present, and they need some more information in order to help them deal with loss and to help them to live in a way that's pleasing to God. Maybe, maybe. There are saints in the church who have died, and these people who are sorrowing, family members, moms and dads and sons and daughters, they're maybe turning back to old habits. Maybe they're, you know, in our modern vernacular, maybe they're turning to substances. You know, they're drowning their sorrows. They're despondent. There's no hope, and they need some information. Paul's informing to strengthen their faith. But I think this topic, Paul is really highlighting it because of the prevalence in the world of hopelessness among especially unbelievers. You see that in the beginning of verse, at the end of verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Who is he speaking of? Speaking of unbelievers, those outside the church, those who are remaining out of Christ, Unbelievers, they can't do anything but sorrow without hope. Even if they think they have hope, what hope do they really have if they don't believe in the resurrection? They don't believe in eternal life with God forever. Unbelievers have no solid basis for hope beyond the grave or of ever seeing loved ones again. Ignorance and unbelief lead to hopeless sorrow. Maybe in the church there was ignorance, outside the church there's unbelief, but the net result is people are grieving, they're sorrowing without hope. And Paul is writing because it really is necessary for proper grieving among God's people. We're writing to you about those who have died so that you will not grieve like unbelievers who do it without hope. And I, I, there is indication here that there's an appropriate way to grieve and an inappropriate way. For believers to grieve. I, if you were with us some time ago, the only thing I remember is we were downstairs in the fellowship hall meeting. It was sometime during COVID. Pastor spent some time working through a, a resource, I believe, by John Flavel about grief. And I, I'm sure you could find it down on the bookshelf. It was very helpful. And Pastor Flavel kind of drew this contrast, if I remember correctly, between moderate and immoderate grief. 
we cannot and we will not properly grieve if we don't have hope. What do we mean by moderate or immoderate grief? Two examples that came back to my mind, I think even in that book, or when you think about David, after he sinned, King David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, and God says, because of what you've done, that baby must die. And David is just sorrowing, pleading with the Lord. He's not eating. Before that baby dies, while that baby is sick, and the people are wondering what's going to happen when they know the baby finally died, what's David going to do? But then they tell him, and he, he cleans himself up, and he goes and eats. And they're surprised, and they're asking him, why did you do this? Well, he was willing to plead to the Lord while there was hope, but when he knew the Lord's will in the matter, he took that as God's will, and that moderated his grief. But maybe when you think of someone like Jacob, remember way back in Genesis, when the brothers hate Joseph so much that they're willing to kill him, expose him in the pit, just leave him there to die, but then Reuben sells him into slavery, but they've got to do something to cover it up. So they lie to their father and Jacob thinks his son is dead and he's never going to see him again. His favorite son, the heir. What does Jacob say? You, you're going to bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. He will not take any comfort for his sorrow. It's, it's unbounded. It's despondency. It's immoderate grieving. And of course, when we think about sorrow and grief, it's not that sorrow itself is wrong. Jesus himself was the man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. What, is it, what does it look like to grieve without hope? We could get into this. Maybe if, you, if you, we accept that there are stages of grief. You know, maybe when, when you're angry about a loss, and you have no hope. You're just, you're just angry. You're just angry at, at God. If you believe in him, you're angry at a higher power. But if you have hope, maybe, maybe you're angry at sin and brokenness. And the fact that mankind sinned and brought death into the world. And you have hope that Jesus will break the power of sin. Or maybe if you're, if you're into this stage of bargaining. You know, you've, you've denied the fact that it's happened. If we accept this theory of grief, you're angry about it. You're bargaining, you know, people, you know, if, if God, if you bring this person back or if this changes, then I'll make my life better. And there's something to paying what you vow. But if you have no hope, maybe you're just, you're just bargaining with people or bargaining with God or whatever you believe in just for yourself. You don't have hope beyond anything but you and your own comfort. But if you have hope, you can talk to God about that. You can bring your cares to him. You can share your grief. You can lament to God. But maybe what we think of most when we think of grief is, is depression. When we just kind of resign ourselves to it maybe a little bit and we're just low. We're filled with gloominess. We're struggling against feeling down all the time. And maybe some of us are more prone to that than others. I, I get that. But the depression could manifest in sinful ways too, couldn't it? Bitterness, withdrawal in sinful ways, joylessness, refusal to accept comfort from the Lord. I think the distinction we could make based on hope is that believers can sorrow without being despondent, just absolutely unhinged sorrow. There is no end. What do believers ha unbelievers have but that? And then if you think in terms of a final stage of grief, what does it look like to grieve with hope? Rather than just resigning yourself and being resentful about it, maybe you can be content. The Lord could lead you finally to contentment, couldn't he? And joy and comfort in his will and his dispensation to you at that point in your life. What do you think about when you think about death? Do you think about death? We don't have to a lot in our culture. Kind of push it out to the outsides as much as we can until about Halloween time, right? Then it becomes a fascination. Is it scary? Is it unnatural? Do you celebrate it? Is it uncomfortable to you? There was no death before sin. How about loved ones who have died? I know there are many who have faced this, and this is very personal to you. 
There's a lot of sorrow, isn't there? Is there hopelessness? It's not that we don't grieve. That's not what this verse says, but that we will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. God, God gives us the gift of sorrow, I think, and of grief, but he intends that we grieve in a godly way, in a way that's informed by the truth. I think you could even argue from scripture in a restrained, in a moderated way, rather than in an unrestrained, in a hopeless way. God gives us hope. I think if, if you're there, don't forget the command, the command, rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And again, I say rejoice. And the key there is rejoice in the Lord. I was reading one author on this and he said, this is not cheer up because things could be worse. Nor does he say, nor am I inferring that we should pretend that our problems aren't very serious if they are very serious. And still further, he says, I'm not in intimating that we can overcome despondency solely by an exertion of our own willpower. No, he says, what I am affirming is that real Christians can overcome despondency, regardless of how serious their circumstances or situation may be, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He goes on, what I am asserting is that Christians can rejoice always if they handle their problems God's way. Rejoicing Christians can rejoice at all times and all places in every circumstance, even, I would add, in very personal, deep, painful loss. We can. God commands this. He gives us his spirit. Do you think that any circumstance in your life will make it impossible for you to obey that? No, and it may be very hard, but may the Lord help us to rejoice in him. Even if our circumstances aren't happy, the Lord can give us contentment and satisfaction in him and in his will. And he will enable us by his spirit to obey that command, even if it feels impossible. So if you're God's child, you don't need to grieve hopelessly. In fact, we shouldn't grieve hopelessly. Because Christ gives us hope, doesn't he? We can rejoice in him. Even, even if that pain of that loss feels like it'll never go away. There is hope in knowing Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the critical point. So Paul introduces this topic for, for the comfort and the encouragement of the faith of these believers, even for us. But in verse 14, Paul turns to, to explain what exactly grounds the hope of the Christian. Why, why can we have such an enduring hope? This must certainly be a strong foundation, right? What are, what are the three truths in verse 14? You see first Jesus' death and resurrection, and I think you could say his ascension. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's pillar number one, you could say. But then in the second half of the verse, I think you could say generally this way, it's Jesus' association with those who believe in him. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. There's a connection, and that's one of the pillars of our hope. There's a connection between this risen one and us if we're in him. But then at the beginning of verse 15, I think the third pillar is the fact that God has revealed this to us. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. This is a certain thing. This is that the, the word of the Lord is something you often read about in the prophets. You could almost say this is a prophecy. This is something that is revealed by God. And that's the only way it can be a comfort to us because if God didn't tell us, we wouldn't know. So what is the foundation of Christian hope? Well, Jesus' death and resurrection. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again. What is this? What is Paul talking about? Well, Jesus died as a substitute, didn't he? To bring sinful men to God. This is the gospel. God created all men. And all men sin against God by nature and by choice, the Bible tells us. And then every person after Adam is born with a sinful nature, with God's wrath on him. And God is just to do that. And if God's wrath is never dealt with somehow... The Bible says that every person must be cast into the lake of fire 
or eternity for sin against an eternal and holy and just God. By his grace and his mercy, God himself, the offended one, the one who we sinned against, he himself made a plan from eternity to deal with sin and really to bring praise to the glory of his grace. He sent his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who alone never sinned and who alone could offer himself as a sinless substitute in place of sinners to die and to bear all of God's wrath against sin. And Jesus did that. And God punished Jesus for my sin and for yours. When the Jews had Jesus executed on a Roman cross unjustly for no sin of his own, he was the sacrificial lamb. He was the only one, and he is the only one who can take away your sin and mine. And he made that possible by offering himself as an innocent sacrifice. He died. Jesus died, Paul says. But then he rose again. He didn't stay dead. He was raised for our justification. God accepted his offering for sin. And that proved it vindicated Jesus, his innocence, his sacrifice, God's acceptance of it, that Jesus had defeated sin and death. So they're without any power over him and over those who are in him. When Jesus died and rose again, he took all of the guilt and shame and defeat of sin and death on the cross. But he proved his innocence. He wasn't guilty. He was innocent. He proved his, his honor. He wasn't shamed forever. He was the risen king. And he was powerful, ascended to the Father's right hand when he was raised from the dead. And through him alone, even today, centuries later, can the penalty of sin be paid. It has been paid. Only through him is the power of sin broken. Only through him is the presence of sin one day taken away as God's people are made new. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus rose from the grave. Amen. Do you believe that? This is what makes Jesus the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. There is no one else who qualifies, no one else who can do this to bring you to God. He is God and man. He is sinless. He is accepted by the Father. I would invite you today to respond to that truth by turning from your sin, that, that sin that required a payment, and believe in Jesus as Lord today. Won't you? Jesus died and rose again. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's one of the, the foundation stones of our hope. But if we believe that, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. There's, there's an association here. If you believe, Paul says, it's not that our belief makes it true. That's not what he's saying. But that is the, kind of the condition of your participating in the other part of the verse. He says, even so, or thus also. If that happened to Jesus or since it happened to Jesus, thus also you have the confidence, if you believe that, that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Literally, you could, could be uh, translated, God, the ones who have fallen asleep through Jesus, will lead with him. God does this. He recognizes those who believe in Jesus. And at the end, he will act on behalf of those who have fallen asleep through Jesus or with Jesus, those who died after having believed in Jesus for salvation. And God will bring them with, there's a strong emphasis on with. It's its own separate word. Sometimes it's just kind of a little preposition tacked onto the end of a word, but this is its own word. Those he will bring with him. There's a strong association between Christ and his people. And there's lots of doctrine packed into this verse. This is part of the hope of Jesus' resurrection, isn't it? That all those who believe in him, like him, 
will defeat death by participating in the, in the future bodily resurrection when God brings all his own back to him. He will lead them back to himself, I think is the sense. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. You know, it's kind of the end of the tomatoes. I've got a few that are trying to ripen here at the end of the season. But those first ones in the summer, you pick them, right? And you expect a lot more to come. Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, and he guarantees many more to come, right? But you also see here the Bible's view of death. What does it call? Death, those who have fallen asleep. Death isn't final. It's temporary. Even for those who don't know Christ, there's a resurrection for the just and the unjust. Some to eternal glory, some to eternal condemnation. But you also see here indication of Christ's second coming. It wasn't always apparent to everyone throughout history that the Messiah would come to earth and then he would leave and come back again, right? You see the disciples struggling with this. It wasn't always clear, but as, as revelation has unfolded and we have the whole Bible now, it's clear. Jesus came into the world the first time, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It was a mission of mercy, but now we know for sure he's coming again. And what is he coming to do then? He's coming to judge. I heard someone say once that life is the time to affect your eternal destiny. Once you die, there's no more chance, right? Now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. That's why there's no delay. Do you know how many days you're going to live? God knows. He's appointed every one of them before you were even born. That's why there's urgency here. Christ is coming, and sooner or later, sooner, we're all going to die, too. He will come. If you read the book of Revelation, you see him in all his glory as the rightful judge of the living and the dead. But also, all throughout this paragraph, you see the importance of believing in Christ, don't you? Every person falls into one of two categories, right? Based on the relationship to God, it has to do everything with whether or not you're still in your sin. Have you believed in Jesus Christ or not? That is the critical issue. It's not what church you went to, how often you went to church, how much money you gave, how you've been trained, how much service you've done for Christ. It's not your ethnicity. It's not your denomination. It's not your political party. It's not what news network you watch. It's not who, what political candidate you vote for. It's not your family heritage. It's not your economic status. It's between you and God. And in the end, it'll just be you and him. And he will know. Have you taken your sin to Jesus? Jesus is the only way. And it's by our association with him that he brings us to God. That's pillar number two. He died and rose again. And he has made a way for people to be associated with him. But then Jesus really does specifically reveal this to us. Paul says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He's gotten this from Christ himself. Christ revealed this. And the fact that he revealed it is a great comfort because, like I said before, if he didn't tell us, we wouldn't know. And the fact that he has told us is another foundation to our hope because he said it. And if he said it, we know it's true. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, the application for you is, have you believed the gospel? Have you responded to this fact that Christ died for sin. And the only way you can be right with God is through him. But Christian, are you believing right now the truth of the gospel? This is the foundation of your hope for the future. It wasn't just then when maybe you made a decision for Christ, but it is right now in your sorrow. That's why Christians must be people of the gospel throughout their whole lives, because in the gospel, we're told 
of Jesus' death and his resurrection. That's what makes it such good news. It wouldn't be good news if he was still dead. We would be most pitiable of all people, Paul says. That's the whole reason we're here today and not somewhere else. Because Jesus is alive. That has ramifications throughout our whole lives. And when you think about that, when, when that's running through your mind in relation to Jesus, that makes him precious to you, doesn't it? That makes God big in your mind that God had victory over death. He has victory over death, even in your life right now. That honors God, that honors Christ and his work, and it refreshes your soul when you think about what Christ did in his earthly ministry, what he's even doing right now in heaven for us. That's how we endure through the storms of life that will blow against our faith, that will try to get us to bend and break and abandon the faith. We don't have that foundation. We don't have the roots in our, in, our, in our life to withstand that kind of pressure. So Paul informs them that they do indeed have a, have a rock-solid foundation for their Christian hope. But then very quickly, the second half of verse 15, he, he turns to who is it exactly? Of course, we've referred to brethren. We're speaking about the church. It's... He says, those who were alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Who specifically is he talking about? Yes, saints, but he's, he's putting his finger on the fact that it's those who are dead and those who are alive. It's everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're, whether you're dead or alive. The resurrection, that's the point. It overcomes that. That's the core of Paul's teaching here. Those who have died have not been lost forever. They're right now present with the Lord just without a body at the moment. This guarantee of being with Christ forever comes to all of those who believed in Jesus for salvation in this life, whether or not they're living when he comes. And it is interesting that Paul says that we who are alive and remain, I think that gives you insight into how Paul thought about Christ's return. It's coming. It's coming. He expected to be alive when it happened. And it didn't. But do we think that way? We who are alive and remain when Christ comes. There's urgency about what Paul thought. And maybe this sounds crazy to you. You know, everybody knows that Christians who die go to heaven. Well, if you didn't have a verse like this, what would you think? Imagine being a Christian, a new Christian, converted from paganism, steeped in, in Greek philosophy, maybe. One author kind of gathered some Greek thoughts about Death, and said this, in the face of death, the pagan world did stand in despair. One Greek author wrote, once a man dies, there is no resurrection. There were those in the culture who just denied it. They didn't believe it. What would it be like to grow up believing there was nothing after the grave? Another Greek writer wrote, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. Another person said, when once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. There's not a lot of hope there. There's been a tombstone that's been found, perhaps several, to the effect that said, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Doesn't matter. Maybe they were turning back to that. What happened to this person? I thought Christ was coming back. I thought, I thought we'd go to heaven, but this person died. They're, they're, they're struggling. Praise the Lord for this kind of revelation that can give us such hope. And the fact that we know it and it's almost a given to us, that's not a credit to any insight that we have. That's a credit to the enduring power of God's revelation to his people. And those are the beneficiaries of this hope. So we have this foundation, and it's we who are in Christ who have this, this specific revelation about the future that fills us really with wonder. Even at, as at the same time, it points us not just to what's happening to us, but to the risen lamb himself, right? This really is the glory of the Christian hope in verse 16. It's really marvelous. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So what does he look at first? The, the glory of the Christian hope? It's to the king himself, the glorious descending king. The Lord himself in his body. This is part of his splendor. Revelation chapter one, when John turns and sees the voice that's speaking with him, he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden, golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. What would you do? You'd do exactly what John did. You fell at his feet like a dead man. The king himself will make an appearance in all his splendor. And he'll come, we've got to move quickly, with a shout. This word is a voice of command, a shout of command. What is he? What is the shout of command going to be? I, I'm not sure. But if you read John 11, when Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus and he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, humble. Here, outside, he says. Do you think that's what Jesus might shout in a command? Here, with me. It's glorious in his appearance, in his voice. And there's angelic praise that's accompanying it. It's, it's glorious. What does the voice of an archangel sound like? I don't know. Have you ever been to an air show? What are the words you want to hear? Here comes this, you know, whatever plane for the high-speed pass, right? And he comes by and he breaks the sound barrier. And nobody can look away. It's astonishing. He's breaking the speed of sound. My understanding is that the, the record for the human voice was set in 2014. The Guinness Book of World Records recorded a stadium at a, at a game. The crowd reached 142 decibels. Maybe you heard that a couple miles away. Maybe it really shook the ground. It was really impressive. No doubt it was loud on the field, right? Did we hear that in Ohio? It was in Missouri, Kansas City. No. Was it heard around the world? What do you think the voice of an archangel will sound like? Do you think everybody will hear that? Do you think anybody will turn to their phone and look at the news? No. Nobody's going to be able to look away. It's going to be overwhelming. And the trumpet of God. Have you ever heard an orchestra performance that, that just kind of made your neck tingle. My, my neck just did it right now. Gave you shivers down your spine. Have you ever heard that? It's through the sheer beauty and the power of, of the resonance filling the concert hall, and it's just overpowering. It It just fills you with awe. It's almost this worshipful experience, right? You had that? Have you ever been to an orchestra concert that made you instinctively, impulsively, involuntarily just fall down on your face? in terror and awe. What do you think this orchestra concert is going to sound like? The trumpet of God, often associated with God's presence. You could read, Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 15, at the Mount Sinai. What did the people say? It's on the mountain. It's maybe even miles away from them. They're terrified. And God even told them not to come close. Lord, we, this is too much for us. The trumpet of God was there in the, in the smoke, in the cloud, in the darkness. There's glorious, angelic praise accompanying the, the glorious king. But then what happens? There's a glorious promised resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first. Into new, sinless, immortal bodies matched with their, with their undying souls. There even seems to be a little bit of preference or honor given to those who had died. Maybe, maybe they, they conceived of having died as a shameful thing, but they're, they're given honor. They're given first place, even though there's, it's, it's kind of all simultaneous. 
They're rising first. They won't have to wait for their new bodies when they come. And then there's this glorious encounter. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And we will meet the Lord in the air. This is when our faith will finally be made sight. It's the moment we're waiting for, isn't it? Have you ever gone on a trip and you get home and you know your family's at the airport and you get off the plane, you walk through the terminal, you're getting back to the luggage and what are you doing? You're kind of looking, trying to see around the people. You're really excited, you know? Maybe if you've run a race and you know people are waiting for you, mile 20, you're just, you're, you're looking for them and you're excited and you're getting a little bit overwhelmed and tears are kind of coming to your eyes and then you see them. We will meet the Lord in here. And then there's a glorious eternal fellowship. We will at all times unending be with our Lord and Savior and Shepherd. We shall always be with the Lord. And again, there's this word again. There's an emphasis on being with him. We will be in his very presence. The same presence that right now for, for comfort, we, o- we only ascertain by faith, right? But then it'll be face to face. It'll be full and free and unhindered. What does the hymn say? Oh, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. We will be like him because we will see him as he is, John says. And what's striking about this, as Paul kind of turns his attention to the scene and the glory of the king, is this entrance with all its noise and splendor, that really is an entrance fitting for the greatest king ever to walk the earth, right? This is all appropriate for the grandeur of that one who's coming in the clouds. And and we get to worship him. We're on his side. He is our king. Does that fill you with hope? That's at least part of the point that he's coming for us. All of the splendor and the glory that he has in himself. He, He is honoring his people as we're associated with him. God revealed this to us, and he intends it to comfort us. And yes, it's, it's truth for us. But what's striking is that this is a scene focused on Jesus Christ, right? I don't know what that's going to look like, if there's going to be people flying through the air or what. But I don't think they're going to be looking at us. They're going to be looking at him. I think that's instructive because what, what orients us and comforts us and helps us more than anything else in our sorrow is fixing our attention on our Lord and Savior, our victorious King, Jesus. Because that day when Christ appears and the trumpet sounds and it grows louder and louder and there's this commanding voice calling people from the graves, declaring his authority over death, the voice of that, that chief angel is just booming through all the earth. Everybody's going to be craning their neck to see the king, right? And even as real people will be joining all of these saints coming with him in the clouds, the celebration and the focal point of that meeting will not be on the other people, at least not right away, but on the risen lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the joy of being with that band of redeemed people Will no, it will no doubt be filled with many wonderful reunions. But what's the great joy of eternity? The eternal state and the new heaven and the new earth. It's being forever with the Lord. That's the great joy. So is that your hope? Is your hope set on Christ? But then also, is that how you're living right now? Don't you have the opportunity to fellowship with him and to fix your hope on him now, not just in the future, but right now, to delight 
in knowing Christ through his word. This is what people who really understand and are headed to heaven do. This is what we do when our hope is fixed on Christ. So this is true, and and God will keep his word. But Paul says finally at the end, very quickly, that God reveals this to his people for a purpose. What is the purpose that God tells us all of this? Well, the purpose of revealing all of this is comfort, ministry, I think even, even focusing our faith. Therefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. Comfort your own heart. The word is parakaleo. It's exhort that we call the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us. Comfort for our hearts is why God reveals this to us. But notice Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words, not just for our own private griefs and sorrows, but so that we can minister to others as well in their sorrow. You get hints here of God, Christ, who, God, who is the God of all comfort, Second Corinthians 1, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may comfort one another with the, with the comfort that he comforts us with. So ministering to others, God reveals this so that we can help others in the body who are experiencing sorrow that might really be taking a toll on their faith. But then what does he, what does he call it at the end? With these words, he calls them words. Revelation, Logos. That really puts our attention back on the word of God and the revelation of God. That is the only way that we can can know for sure that it's true and it's certain. And just very quickly to apply that. We need to be around one another. We need to fellowship together for these truths. But we also need to minister to one another with these truths, don't we? We need to be together. We just need the presence of one another. But we also need to be speaking the truth and love. But in all of this, what is the great necessity? It's that you be in Christ. Because those who have Christian hope have to be Christians. For yourself, you need to know that. But for your loved ones, too. One of the greatest gifts that has been passed down to generations is the certainty that, you know, my mom, my dad, I saw it in their lives. I, I saw it in this. They're with Christ today. They're with Jesus today. And they're going to be there that day. That's a comfort to you. So are you in Christ today? There are things we need to know, right? If we're going to succeed in this life, if we're going to live a life honoring to God, and where do we find them? Where do we find what we need to know to live a life pleasing to God? We find them in the Bible. And one of the things we need is hope. And the message today is that there is hope in Jesus. So turn to him. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this sure word and the comfort that it ministers to us. I pray that we would, that you would minister it to us, that you would thrill our hearts with the certainty of the resurrection and Christ's return and his grace, your grace to us. The Lord, help us to comfort one another. And if there's any here, there anybody if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you pray that they would have certainty so that they could have hope it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god may we find ourselves in the only shelter jesus christ pray these things in his name amen